Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast. For the next hour, your hosts will go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam, the provocateur. And Cam, what? Oh, wait. Cam, we're joined by a guest this week. That's right. We are for the first time ever, no less. Indeed. This week, ladies and gentlemen, we are joined by David Lowbridge Ellis from the License to Queer blog. David, say hello. Hi, guys. Nice to be here. Fantastic. Now, David, you're joining us. You are our first guest ever. You are setting the template for all guests to look to from now on. So no pressure. I've suddenly become overcome by massive imposter syndrome. So, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll try my best. That's all we ask for. Now, David, tell us a little bit about yourself. So in my real life, the day job, I'm a leader of a secondary school and um, obviously uh, the world being in the place it is this year has been really interesting for those of us in education and uh, contrary to what you may have heard in uh, the press, teachers haven't just been sitting at home doing nothing, uh, but in the time where I haven't been doing education stuff, uh, I found it um, quite uh, the best thing to do for for my own mental health, to be perfectly honest, has been to kind of channel uh, some of my mental energy into creative things. So I've finally got around to starting a website that I had in my mind for years and years, uh, which is called Licensed to Queer, which, as the name suggests, is um, LGBTQ plus uh, queer readings of the James Bond films, books, video games and everything else. As I say, what what I write is basically what I've had going around in my head for years and years and years because I've been a, a James Bond fan for, you know, I'm 38 now and I've been a James Bond fan since at least I was about six or seven years old, something like that. So, yeah, it's kind of like a lifetime's obsession being poured out online. So that that's what Licensed Queer is about, really. And I'm having a, an absolute blast and finding that the Bond community is far more welcoming and inclusive um, than perhaps people might realise. There's a lot of queer Bond fans out there and it's lovely to interact with people who have such a wide range of opinions. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I came across your profile on Twitter a few weeks back now and I reached out to you just to say, like, thank you for the blog. I really enjoyed reading it. And uh, we got to talking about North by Northwest and that sort of ended up with you joining us this week. Yeah, I mean, I love all the antecedents to Bond, um, in, like North by Northwest as well. So it's not just James Bond that I'm obsessed with. It's the whole spy genre in it, in, in, as a whole. Uh, and that includes what we're going to be talking about today. So thank you very much for having me on for this film, which, as I know we'll get into, um, has quite quite a few personal significances for me. Very nice. I, I just had a question for you, David. Um, so when you're writing about James Bond for your blog... Which film is like your favorite and which one is the most interesting to delve into from, you know, your point of view? Can I just say I hate that question? <laughs> but, but thank you. But thank you for asking it because I, I kind of, yeah, I hate that question because there isn't an answer. There isn't an easy answer, but I love questions right. that don't have easy answers, really. But I'll, you know, with, without going off on one, um, I think my favorite James Bond film depends on what mood I'm in. Mm -hmm. I I think it, if, if I have to answer the question in one film title, it's Casino Royale, because I think it gets absolutely everything perfect. 
about what I think the James Bond character is, but the James Bond character is within fairly tight parameters, quite malleable. So I, it, I won't always put Casino Royale on. My, my go-to, you know, when I want comfort food in a film is like Tomorrow Never Dies or A View to a Kill, um, those sorts of films, which, is, which are a really easy watch, but they have fairly kind of uh, rough and tumble elements to them as well. And I, I, I find it really, really hard to pick. The only one that I'm never going to put on that list is Die Another Day. Of course, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but even that has some redeeming qualities, and I've seen it probably far too many times than I probably should have. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I mean, as a follow-up question to Cam's question there, is there any spy films outside of the Bond genre that are your favourites? Yeah, I mean, some of the Bond series, which I know we'll get into, um, anything, um, anything which... I mean, I love Hitchcock films generally, not just North by Northwest, but some of these... Slightly harder spy thrillers as well. I read quite a lot of spy fiction as well. So John le Carré, although I haven't seen a lot of the adaptations, I've read quite a lot of the books. But anything that's in that milieu, that's that kind of um, anything in a spying mood, whether it's very serious like John le Carré or it's kind of more... uh, let's say tongue-in-cheek i haven't um like the man from uncle mm-hmm. for instance right. i i grew up watching a lot of 60s tv even though i was born in the 80s i grew up watching a lot of 60s tv series because my parents watched them and when we when i was growing up in the 80s and early 90s a lot of those were repeated on tv so things like the man from the man from uncle was probably my favorite and i watched i think i watched every episode and all the films um yeah, so if it's got a spy in it, I will be inexorably drawn to it. Well, awesome. And it's good that you're a specialist in, you know, spies named JB. And we're going to mm. talk about a different JB this week. Mm. Which leads me on perfectly to my uh, very important question, Cam. What are we doing this week? We are going to take on the 2004 sequel to The Born Identity, The Born Supremacy. That's right. Now, I know you all love to hear it. And here is the letterbox.com synopsis for Born Supremacy. Now, Cam, you usually think it's probably longer than it is. David, how long do you think this one is? How many lines do you reckon? Um, well, actually, I think the story is fairly simple once you actually iron it flat. But I know Letterbox sometimes go a little bit overboard. So I didn't cheat and look in advance because obviously, you know, having listened to your, to your podcast episodes, I know you always start with this. And I was tempted to have a look, but I'm going to go for, let's go eight sentences. I appreciate your restraint. Here it is. The born supremacy. They should have left him alone. When a CIA operation to purchase classified Russian documents is blown by a rival agent, who then shows up in a sleepy seaside village where Bourne and Marie have been living. The pair run for their lives, and Bourne, who promised retaliation should anyone from his former life attempt contact, is forced to once again take up his life as a trained assassin to survive. Wow, that's like a Henry James novel. <laughs> it is. It's so obscure. Oh, God, don't get me started on Henry James. James, sorry. <laughs> I had to read so much Henry James for my English degree, and I'm just like, oh, God, no. Apart from Turn of the Screw, I'm not going there. But yeah, that that is sort of hope. Is it just me, or is that a bit vague? 
Um, well, they take a very simple premise, as Letterboxd loves to do, and blow it out in... Uh, I like whoever wrote that, like, to get really wordy, too. They're like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm going to really show off here. But, yeah, it, I guess it does the job. But I'm going to have to give this one, like, a C, I think, on my Letterboxd, um, you know, synopsis grading scale. This guy definitely had a thesaurus next to him when he wrote it, I'm fairly sure. And it came yeah. out at 10 lines. So there oh, right. wow. No, not too bad. Not too Good yeah. guess. Good guess. Um... So the first question we always ask is initial thoughts. And David, as you're our guest, before we sort of get into the meat of it, what are your initial thoughts for when you first saw this film? I, I, I only rewatched this film this morning. And it's one of those films that I'd actually put off rewatching for quite some time. I even watched it on DVD. I haven't even got it on Blu-ray. Um, so um, so I've, I've put off re- re-watching it for some time because I was obsessed with this film when it came out in 2004. Um, and I think perhaps for some personal reasons, but also as I rewatched it this morning, and I'm very nervous now because I know you two <laughs> haven't said what you think of this film. I actually think it's one of the more perfect spy films that are out there. I, I really wouldn't change much about this film at all i i just loved it at the time i particularly loved the score at the time john powell's music is such an upgrade over the first film and i think that goes for everything about this film as well it's like you can always just forget the first one existed Uh, i think this one stands really well on its own two feet so yeah i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna find it you know i might have to bite my tongue a few times if you guys come for this film (laughs) <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna my hackles will be raised and i may have to defend it no comment <laughs> cam what about you so yeah um i remember i didn't go and see this one in theaters i have no idea why um because i was going to see like everything in 2004 i had nothing else to do um but for some reason i didn't and i remember renting it after i was doing a late shift at work uh from blockbuster you know r.i.p blockbuster and um, I really enjoyed it a lot. I remember at the time thinking it felt very different than the first film. Um, but it was also a movie that like, I watched the once, really enjoyed, and then never revisited. Uh, so like, it's been really great delving into this Bourne uh, series again, just because I'd seen them all, but I didn't really connect the plot points. I can't say I was particularly obsessive watching the movies at the time, following the characters and tracking the plots. So... I, I got to say, like, I've really enjoyed this this second one in the past, but it's been very interesting revisiting it. I mean, I'd say from my point of view, I, I'm fairly sure I caught the third one at the cinema. I definitely didn't see this one or the first. I think I was too young for the first. But I definitely rewatched them in a row later on. And I remember sort of going, yeah, this is okay. And then moving on to whatever I was doing next at the time. But I couldn't tell you when I watched it. But I, I don't, I, there's no lasting impressions in my mind except for maybe the, the gifts that have been made from this film that get reposted from time to time. Right. Yeah. Um, but that, that's my sort of initial thoughts before I went back to rewatch it. Now, Cam, do you have any background? This is our first time doing a sequel. So obviously we know how some of the characters were brought into the fold. But uh, do you have any background on this one? Yeah. So, um, there was no plans to make a sequel to The Born Identity. The production under Doug Lyman, the director at the time, had been so messy. I think everyone was just really happy to get that film finished, get it to theaters. And then it turned into a real sleeper hit. And then Universal and producer Frank Marshall were like, ha, huh, we may have something here. And Lord knows Robert Ludlum has other Born books. 
maybe we should be looking at those. And I'm just curious, um, Scott and I haven't read any of the Robert Ludlum novels. Um, Have you, David? I actually, because I was so obsessed with this film in the early 2000s, mid to 2000s, I did actually pick up the film tie-in edition of The Bourne Supremacy. And that was a mistake because um, not only is it definitely, it's a really, really long novel. And I, you know, I've read The Count of Monte Cristo. I can read a long book if I want, if I, if I have to. Uh, But um, it's, it's so different from the characters and you mentioned this on your podcast about the Bourne identity. You said basically they took some of the characters and situ- not much of the situations and everything else. Um, and that that's absolutely, your analysis is spot on because there's this whole stuff about him fighting Carlos the Jackal, which is referred to all the way through that book. And uh, I say all the way through the book, I didn't actually get through the whole novel of the Bourne Supremacy. I think I got about two or 300 pages in and I was having to do like I do with any book with more than six characters. I was having to actually draw a map of all the characters and how they related. And it didn't help because I hadn't read the first book because, and because the characters were so different. So I was profoundly disappointed when I picked it up. And it had none of the energy, you know, they were, I've, I've never read any of the Robert Ludlum, and I know he has his fans, but they're a- airport paperbacks, and I'm never snobby about books at all. You know, although I've got an English degree, I, I you know, I, I love some anything, genre fiction, whatever. But, you know, my only experience with Robert Ludlum is the first few hundred pages of The Born Supremacy, and it, ne- it hasn't made me want to go back and read any more. Right. Yeah. Like the supremacy novel had a lot of material dealing with Hong Kong under British rule and it had Bourne chasing down a duplicate. Like it's just elements that did not wind up in this film whatsoever. They really only looked at one thing from the novel, which was Marie being kidnapped and held ransom and what that meant to Jason Bourne. And so that was kind of the idea for, you know, Tony Gilroy came back to write this film from the first one. And he basically looked at that incident of what is born kind of stripped bare and on the hunt. Um, And he used one line from the first film where born promises that he'll come after them if they come near him again. And those two things were really the inspiration for this story. He really uh, pitched it to the studio as a samurai's journey, a journey of atonement. And that was kind of enough for them. Um, Frank Marshall at this point is overseeing it as a producer and says, okay, we've got something. So then they go looking for a director because Matt Damon decides to come back, but he really wasn't expecting to make a sequel. Um, And they found uh, Paul Greengrass, who was a former investigative journalist who became a filmmaker. He directed a film called Bloody Sunday, which was a docudrama about the Irish civil rights protest massacre of 1972. And that was kind of the basis for bringing him in. They watched that movie. They all loved it and thought this guy could do a Bourne film. And Greengrass joined on, and his first approach was to make the camera work very reactive, he liked to say. Create a sense of immediacy and really have, you know, the camera fighting to catch up. Basically playing this out like footage that someone might capture on the street of being a little too slow on the uptake. And, I mean, his addition makes a big difference. I think Paul Greengrass really does shape what this franchise is, and I think you'd both agree on that, right? 100% from my point of view and it's fascinating what you just said about Samurai Journey of Atonement I love Samurai movies as well so Akira Kurosawa movies Yojimbo and all that sort of stuff and I love Westerns which often you know riff on a lot of Samurai themes too that makes total sense now I didn't realize that that was the intention and I I did you know I although I've got 
you know, not such positive feelings about anything after the Bourne ultimatum, um, including Paul Greengrass's return. I, I do, I, I credit, I, I think it's fair to credit him with it, yeah. Yeah, and what are you about you, Scott? I mean, you can just tell the difference between the two films. It just, I wrote down the word propulsive. It, yeah. That is how I would describe this film. It, it doesn't stop. It, it never gives you a minute to breathe. Even just from a cinematography standpoint, it just it just keeps going. Cut, 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 cut. And he certainly, when I think about Bourne, that's what I remember. Yeah, like a big direction for the sequel was the idea of him running away in the first film and having a direction in this film. And you could definitely tell Greengrass just has this propulsive direction and he's not going to let his foot off the pedal like throughout this entire movie. It's very fast paced. Um, one other interesting note was apparently two weeks before this film was released, uh, Matt Damon and Paul Greengrass brainstormed a new ending and had to get 200000 from the studio to make it happen. And um, Matt Damon had to take leave from shooting Ocean's 12. So I would guess that's that bit at the end where he's on the phone with, um, with uh, Pamela that was added after the fact. So that whole coda in the uh, projects in the apartment block, the fl- you know, when he meets that girl, the daughter at the end, that was actually added later. I think the scene with the daughter was all there, but I think the scene with him on the phone with Pamela was uh-huh. added. That's right. my guess. Yeah. They weren't specific. I would love to know specifically what they're talking about, but that's my guess. That doesn't look like £200,000 worth. I'm not being funny, but you know. Not pounds, dollars. <laughs> well, yeah, even so, $200,000 just to shoot, uh, uh, you know, Joan Allen looking through a window and Matt, da- <laughs> Matt Damon looking out another window. What? Well, it took a lot of money to uh, shift uh, Matt Damon's hair back from uh, ocean style to born style for that one day. <laughs> Have they not heard of wigs? <laughs> that would be amazing if he showed up in like a really bad wig. <laughs> oh, I'd love that. With like yeah. uh, 60s hip, hippie glasses and all that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you can see like uh, George Clooney and Brad Pitt are standing in the background just out of focus. <sighs> yeah. So ultimately, The Bourne Supremacy opened in the summer of 2004. It had a budget of $75 million, which again, that's pretty low for a franchise film. Domestically, it did 176 million. International, 115 uh, for a worldwide total of 290 million. Which, I mean, if you're a really expensive movie, that's not like a home run. But if you're if you cost 75 million, that's pretty darn good. You can't really complain with that. I mean, the first one was somewhat successful, but this uh, this is a success, I would say. Yeah, like the Born Identity did 214 million and this did 290. So they're seeing growth at this point. They're like, okay, this franchise is on the upswing. Let's just keep making these. I seem to remember reading something at the time that basically if you wanted a good value movie star, I'm not sure what the the term is for this. There's some kind of ratio, isn't there? If you wanted a good value movie star, you'd get Matt Damon because he wasn't commanding that higher price uh, for the uh, late 90s, early 2000s. But his films always broke even. Is there a technical term for that? Um, a bankable, I guess you could say yeah. a bankable star. Yeah, um, that's true because Matt Damon had, as we said in the Identity episode, he had some shaky years, which probably kept his asking price fairly low. But I would think probably after this film, that that number went up a bit. So uh, yeah, uh, Born Supremacy was number fourteen for the year two thousand four, right between two real classics, Van Helsing. And the Polar Express. Oh God, <laughs> not not a good uh, not a good sandwich there. To be fair, I've not seen the Polar Express. To be fair, the t- the children I teach um, often love that film, and I'm like, oh, maybe you had to be the right age at that time. 
it's a nightmare factory of uncanny valley cg no it's the eyes the eyes the eyes yeah it's always exactly the eyes. yeah <laughs> and so for that year the top three movies were at number one shrek 2 number two harry potter and the prisoner of azkaban and number three spider-man 2 so you've got two really solid movies and one okay one i guess mm, mm. which one's the okay one yeah, that's my two. question. Oh, okay. Yeah. Shrek two. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. I yeah. I pretty much put Shrek in the bin after the first one. But hey ho, each to their own. If you had said Spider Man two was the okay one, I think I would have ended this podcast. No, that's like my one of my favorite superhero movies of all time. Mm. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Um, some other notable releases that year in terms of spies. At number sixty two, you had the Manchurian Candidate remake. At number one hundred and sixteen, you had Agent Cody Banks two: Destination London. And at number 185, the film Spartan, which is a uh, lower tier sort of independent uh, spy drama. Hopefully we tackle on this podcast. I've never seen it, though. No, me either. Not before we get to uh, Cody Banks 1 and 2, of course. Of course, right. And uh, Matt Damon actually had a very busy year this year because he had obviously this one landing at number 14. But at number 10, he had Ocean's 12. At number 105, he had a cameo in Jersey Girl. And at number 126, he had a cameo in a movie Scott fondly recalls called Eurotrip. Oh. oh, no, not that. There was a horrible personal anecdote, wasn't there, Scott, about that one? Sorry to bring it up again. Do, do I have to relive it every time we go to Bourne films? <laughs> I'll be bending over backwards when we get to Jason Bourne, and I'm finding ways to work in Eurotrip references. <laughs> Scotty doesn't know. Scotty doesn't know. <laughs> Okay. Oh, don't on. don't worry, Scott. I'm sure I'll end up sharing something just as embarrassing during this episode. Uh, you could take some of the flack off of me, so that's fine. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm here for. There we are. <laughs> so yeah, that about wraps up the uh, Born Supremacy box office journey. Okay. Now, I think before me and Cam get into the sort of meat of it, I know David. I know you had a, a personal attachment to this film. So is that something you'd like to share with us? Yeah, um, I mean, I've written quite a lot about this from a James Bond point of view, but particularly mm -hmm. as I was re-watching The Bourne Supremacy this, this morning, um, today, I, I realised kind of why I have such an affinity for spy characters. And I'm sure being gay isn't the, you know, is not the only um, way into spy movies. I'm sure anyone who feels, and this is surely everyone, but anyone who feels more or less like an outsider from a social group, I think he's, he's always going to be drawn to spy stories. So Jason Bourne, I think he's the ultimate example of that, even arguably more than James Bond. Because, you know, the, well, the first film is called The Bourne Identity. The films are explicitly about a search for identity, trying to find out who he actually is. And, you know, he does actually find out at the end of The Bourne Supremacy that his name is David, which was an added kind of, you know, I mean, of all the names in the world, probably one of the most common names of all time. But, you know, he finds out, you know, his, his true name sort of thing, but that's not necessarily his full identity. I was trying to think of another example of, of a film series, which is so much explicitly about answering that question, which I think all the best stories are, answering that question of who am I? I always think that's the most interesting story that you can possibly tell. And I think being queer, and I was, I was still in the, in the closet back in 2004 when I first saw this movie. I came out in the late, uh, at the end of that decade, like around 2008-ish. 
So, um, you know, I was actually in my mid twenties at the time. So, um, yeah, I, I, I sat there in this, I remember sitting there in the cinema and particularly it's the scene where he's running down the beach. Um, and even as I watched it this morning, I did have the question in, in my mind, what, who goes running in cargo shorts? Uh, but um, that, so that's a bit, it's a bit of an odd sequence that is. And I presume they just didn't put him in running gear because it meant for the whole ensuing sequence where Marie ends up getting killed in the car, he'd have to be in some, you know, short running shorts and it would look faintly ridiculous. But um, he's, he's, yeah, he's running down that beach and it's cross cutting. The, you talked about, um, Cam, you talked about how much energy that's involved in the cutting of this film. One thing I really noticed on my rewatch this morning was how much cross cutting there is. So you go from, you know, so, born, so in this instance, born running down the beach, and you've got Marie going back through his, you know, handwritten notes, things he's been writing down when he has bad dreams, when he's woken in the middle of the night and that kind of thing. And f for me, that has the effect of there's so much that's unspoken in this film. It is quite a wordy film in some scenes and it can be quite hard to follow at times. But actually, I think it actually sometimes is very economical with words. And I think that cross cutting on that beach sequence is for me, it's him trying to outrun his past. So it's him kind of like going something bad and traumatizing has happened. And he thinks I can just run it away. But obviously, you know, as some characters point out later, and in fact, it's Brian Cox's character. Um, I've written down the exact words here, but it's essentially to the effect of, you know, essentially, you know, you'll always be this way. There's no, there's nothing you can do about this. And I actually remember, you know, it actually kind of rushed back to me as I was watching it this morning. I remember watching that sequence in the cinema going, I've got a secret. I, I, I hate having this secret. I just wish this secret could be out there and then I could kind of move on with my life. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm sure I'm, as I say, you don't have to be gay to have a monopoly on, you know, feeling bad about yourself. But that sequence in particular, and for me, the film works as a whole, as a as an allegory for, for having a secret, whether that's being queer or whatever, whatever's going on in your life and you're not happy about something that maybe it might be something at the time seems quite intractable, which for me in 2004, it definitely was. Mm -hmm. Then I think that's what draws me into this film so much because it is that feeling of guilt almost. And then that that scene in the in the uh, the tower block where he sees the daughter is almost like s some form of coming out sequence. So he actually tells somebody else that essentially he's not a good person. And for me in 2004, you know, growing up in the era of Section 28, where my teachers at school couldn't, you know, say that being gay was OK, essentially. You know, and even if I, I, I and so there was no kind of environment where I felt safe to do that. So, mm. yeah, I, I think I connected with the character on that level. I'd be interested to know whether, you know, to what extent people do actually connect with the character of Jason Bourne. Because because actually he's quite a he's quite a cold character in some ways. But I think there's enough in this film for me to feel quite emotionally connected to him as well. Right. Um. Yeah, Scott, what do you think? Well, I mean, I was just going to say, it's something that me and Cam have kind of remained since the beginning is sort of our perspectives on these films as we're coming into it. And I know Cam is much more of a, a I'll say, a cinephile than I am. Uh, he, he's certainly seen a lot more. He, he tends to look into them a bit more deeper than I do. 
most of the time. I tend to be a bit more surface level. So it's just for me, it's quite fascinating for to hear someone sees it through that lens and take so much from what could be from sometimes my perspective, such a, a simple scene of a guy running across a beach. Yeah, totally. And I think one of the really interesting things about Jason Bourne is that when you look at James Bond, um, he's a very specific character. You know, you've got all the, you know, the quips and the uh, trademark kind of phrases. A lot of who Bond is, is very distinct. Whereas Jason Bourne is much more of a blank figure in a lot of ways. He's a character who's always trying to open himself up. But it also creates this sort of projection for the audience because they can actually put themselves, I think, maybe even more in Bourne's shoes than they can in James Bond's. I'd say 100% on that. And I think a lot, you talked about this on your identity episode, but I think this film pushes the moments where he essentially saves the day by grabbing a household implement. So I'm sitting here in my, I'm sitting here in my kitchen right now. I could blow up this house if I wanted to, I'm not planning to, uh, but I could, <laughs> I could blow up this house by opening the gas main. Although to be honest, I'm the least practical person in the pla on the planet. So I have no idea where that is. Uh, but I could fight theoretically, I could find it. Uh, and I could put a magazine rolled up in the toaster and step outside. And in a few minutes time, theoretically, the whole place would explode. Uh, like, like Jason Bourne does in Munich. And I think those, those bits, of the Bourne films, he, he's a pen in the first film. I, I don't, as I've already said, I'm not that big a fan of the first film, but you talked about the pen on your on your episode. And I'm just like, yeah, you, you can do, it, this is so much more accessible than James Bond because he uses very everyday things and improvises with them. It certainly is very more of a DIY approach to Spycraft, I would say. I, I mean, with the, the rolled up paper and the toaster and the pen in the first one, He's using what's around him and his skills and, and wit to get out of a situation, whereas Bond has, you know, a bulletproof car and a rocket launcher pen and things like that. I would love to know how much of that was a reaction to James Bond versus just being accidental and, and working out really, really well for them. Yeah, I I think it must have been, a, I mean, the whole, you've, you've tackled the elephant in the room, haven't you, really? You know, how much did Bourne influence Bond? And how much was it the other way around? And I actually, because I'm so extra and sad, uh, I, <laughs> as I was watching along in my copious notes, I did start a table. I like a table. Oh. Uh, so, and I did a table. And on one side, I wrote down the things that I thought Bond had copied from Bourne. And then in the other column, I wrote things that uh, Bourne had borrowed from Bond and or Hitchcock. And my column, which is headed up borrowed from Bond, is, far, is, is more than twice the length of what Bourne has copied from Bond, if that makes sense. So mm. I actually, one of the reasons I felt a bit of trepidation re-watching this is, I love Casino Royale, Quantum of Solace, mm, yeah. uh, there's a good film in there somewhere. Uh, um, and the other, yeah, Skyfall is pretty good, but not Casino Royale and Spectre is bits of good uh so i was a bit worried about watching it because i i lots of people say that james bond copied so much from Bourne. actually i think it's the mostly it undoubtedly copies some things from Bourne, but i think mostly it's actually the other way around mm -hmm. i'm trying to rack my brain now what Bourne took from bond okay in an obvious sense 
A lot of people, a lot of people cite the editing, which again we keep circling back around. Mm-hmm. But arguably, Bond reinvented editing. You know, I'm, 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 I'm sure at some point you'll you'll kind of tackle the whole Peter Hunt thing head on. But you know, he he, the person who edited Doctor No, and then obviously he edited the the first five, and then went on to uh, on to direct on a Majesty's Secret Service. Who not a lot of people know was actually a gay man. Um, so uh, you know, I'm always trying to find you know those hidden histories that people are unaware of. But he um, he actually kind of pioneered that editing style almost by accident in a way. But he was an utter genius of quite rapid editing. If you compare any other film from 1962 with Doctor No, and even if it's a masterpiece, you know, go back a few years with North by Northwest, and the editing is so kind of stately in comparison with um, Doctor No, for instance. So that rapid style editing, I think, is a Bond hallmark. Um, And then Bourne kind of took it to that extreme, whereas, as you said, Cam, it's that kind of, the audience always feel like they're fighting to catch up. And then Bond emulates that to an extent. Um, so I think that's probably what a lot of people cite. Yeah, because you think about it, um, Peter Hunt said his whole idea was to cut on action and to create that kind of propulsive quality. It's just that, you know, people look at what Bourne was doing with this film that Paul Greengrass is doing with his editing team. And it feels that extra drastic step forward. And mm. I'm sure that's similar to how audiences would have would have felt in 1962 watching Dr. No. It's just that we were trained that Dr. No is more your classical approach to action cutting when it really wasn't. No. And then when this came along, it revolutionized the way action movies were made. And a lot of bad directors tried to replicate this and did not succeed whatsoever. Absolutely. So I suppose what it is, is Dr. No is on caffeine. And then the Bourne series, especially from Supremacy, is on speed. That's, yeah, that's pretty neat summary. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, if you watch, you know, the car chase in this movie, for example, or some of the fistfights, you know where the vehicles are in relation to one another. He Mm -hmm. never loses that sense of geography. Um, And that's something that a lot of the imitators would do, where they would just have these random shots and you couldn't tell where two cars were in relation to one another. Paul Greengrass... I mean, he's making this look easy because he's so good, but it's not easy and it's very, very difficult to pull off well. And the fact that he does it and creates incredibly satisfying action sequences is a real credit to him. I agree. And yeah, I always think about um, I always think about the Transformers films in terms of yeah. bad, quick Oh, action. God. Uh, do we have to think about the Transformers? Actually, you do have <laughs> to think about the Transformers films. I have no... I haven't got a Scooby-Doo what is going on at any point in those films. Maybe that's what they want. I don't know. But, um, Cam. Yeah. You're revisiting this film after watching it. Uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I really thought this was a fantastic movie. And it really made me reflect that, you know, this movie's made in 2004 and this is definitely the darker born. This is kind of like opening the door for things like the dark Knight or Batman begins or even casino Royale. Obviously it's that, it's that darker look at a hero where in this case, born is grieving from the loss of Marie. And that colors the entire journey of the character throughout this film. And it really makes me reflect that we thought things were really bad in 2004, but, uh, Boy, we didn't know what was coming. (laughs) But I thought this movie was just a riveting journey. And as you said, David, you know, the growth of the character of Bourne was very satisfying by the time I got to the end of this movie, where he's sitting there talking to that girl about killing her parents. I'd forgotten about all of that. And 
you definitely see how this movie could inspire a movie like Logan further down the road as well. I think this one's a real triumph. I think from my side of it, I I kind of enjoyed Born Identity. It wasn't a bad film. We didn't really complain about it like that. But I, I definitely see an improvement in this sequel. It's so interesting if you go back and look at reviews of this film, how many of them are just kind of bemoaning, oh, Paul Greengrass used to make great movies. Now he just makes this. And I think we have, with some you know years of distance, uh, we can recognize that he was really bringing interesting concepts to what could be a straightforward spy movie. I think he brings his documentarian experience into this as well. And he's, his obsessions have actually crept more and more into his Bourne films. So, you know, I've, put, I've written down here, things that Paul Greengrass thinks are bad. <laughs> All male boardrooms. <laughs> the way that that sequence is shot where Pam Landy has to ask permission to go and do something. It's just like, men are bad. And yes, in this in that scene, men are very bad. Um, you know, um, oil oligarchs <laughs> are definitely bad. Um, you know, um, you've got the... all uh, uh, The Bourne films, actually, I think, probably opened my mind to that always listening surveillance culture that has actually kind of become the norm now. You know, mm -hmm. he, Bourne doesn't really have... A, smartphones weren't a thing and it's quite conspicuous in this film that smartphones aren't a thing because he checks timetables and all that sort of stuff and you know he probably wouldn't want to use a smartphone anyway for you know privacy but you see that cia substation in london which i find really creepy the fact that all the intelligence agencies are passing information to each other and that's taken to 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 more of an extreme in ultimatum but also there's like oblique references maybe not that oblique in 2004 but to collateral damage and you know that was the language of the war on terror back mm -hmm. in 2004 so greengrass is purposely trying to smuggle in as many of his um wider concerns into essentially what is as you know a populist action summer movie um, and I, I, I think that's good. I do think he ends up, like with his last Bourne film, I do think he takes that to extremes where it actually gets in the way of the story and actually becomes a little bit kind of virtue signaling in a sense. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, I think it's an interesting blend. Yeah, and I love how he works in his real-world political ideas. I mean, the mm. first movie did that a bit as well, to be fair, you know, to Doug Lyman. Um, but I feel like this one raises that bar that extra level. And so it becomes that sort of thinking person's action movie where you could be, you know, like a 17-year-old teenage guy out with friends or whatever and go see this movie and just watch it as an action movie and think it's awesome and fist-pumping stuff. But if you want to sit there and look at it on a deeper level, it supports that viewing. You just described me and you there, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Yay, guns! Woo! <laughs> Don't give me that much credit back when I was like 22 or 23. <laughs> I've got a note about you uh, for when we get to one of the other characters, Cam, so don't worry. We'll, we'll oh, boy, get, okay. We'll get to 20-year-old Cam at one point. I thought it was really interesting looking at Matt Damon in this movie. He'd kind of lost that babyish kind of look he still had in Born Identity, and he has like a real lean, mean look. And I thought that very much exemplified what the movie was. It is a leaner, meaner Jason Bourne film without kind of the... I don't want to say it doesn't have the human touches because I think it does, but it's almost like pulling Bourne back into his shell where he's almost fighting off these human impulses throughout the film. 
Well, I mean, in the first one, he's kind of the... Uh, obviously, he has amnesia. He's coming back from it. And Franca Patente's mm-hmm. character, Marie, is the love interest, but also kind of the heart of the film. And he loses that right at the start of this film. So Matt Damon has to kind of pick up that mantle of being emotional. And he does show that throughout the film. Yeah, what do you think, David? Yeah, I think that's what, again, that's what draw, drew me to the character so much because he's he has to contain his emotion all the time. So actually, I do think it's a brilliant performance by Matt Damon. I am slightly biased because although I haven't seen many Matt Damon films recently, around this period, like starting with The Talented Mr. Ripley, where he emerges from the ocean in a small pair of green trunks, uh, a few years before Daniel Craig did the same thing, um, then I, I there were there were more obvious um less academic uh, kind of uh, attractions to <laughs> Matt Damon. But um, I, I, I do think this is a brilliant performance because it is so contained. It's so restrained and every little eye movement and uh, twitch and everything else, I think is, is, is showing him really having, having to contain himself. And I think it's probably best epitomized by after Marie has died um, and she's, you know, driven the car off the bridge and he's, almost pointlessly really, for a character who really knows he needs to get moving because there is an assassin out to kill him, he takes the time to watch the jeep being pulled out of the water. And it's such a delicate moment, he's almost crying. You can see the tear forming, just about glinting in the light. And it's that whole thing, are we gonna allow our, our, what's it said, on the surface, and it very much is the surface, this alpha male, this strong, action hero character are we going to allow him to cry and you know we we maybe another time we can get into the whole you know should james bond be crying you know he does eventually <laughs> in skyfall but there's that whole thing about you know it was actually director peter hunt who said to george lazenby who cried on the first take um in the in the aston in the in the car at the end of uh on majesty's after tracy's being shot it's like james bond doesn't cry Mm-hmm. Um, so, so things have changed quite a bit. But does Jason Bourne cry? I think Jason Bourne does cry. It's just he's not going to let us see him cry. So, um, which is obviously the same for everybody. But it's that it's that interesting tipping point. I think in two thousand and four, can we let our main male actor cry on screen? And I think Matt Damon is just is doing such a good job of kind of holding it back, but letting us know that he's probably going to have a right good blart when he's in private. Right. And if you look at the first two Borns, um, he's reborn out of water in both films. In the first one, he's coming out and it's about him opening up, like learning to be vulnerable. And then in this case, he's emerging from the water after Maria's killed and it's born reborn again, Hmm. having to learn to try to close himself off to, you know, to pursue and fulfill a job that he needs to do this revenge mission. And so, like, I find that really fascinating from the point of view of this character, because as you said, Matt Damon is doing so much with so little. And that's the ultimate test of an actor of how much you can convey in, like, the stillest of movements. I think it's fair to say that Matt Damon, again, the second film on, is the, well, he's the main character, obviously, he's driving force of the film. But he is carrying this film on his back. Oh, yeah. Big time. I mean, I think the addition of um, of um, um, Joan Allen adds a lot like Joan Allen is an actress I love she's amazing in like the upside of anger for example but she's an actor who cannot look stupid no matter how hard you try like I I would like to see her play a character like that because I think she'd probably be great at it but when you put her on screen you are immediately looking at her as one of the smartest people in the room 
And she's a great foil for Jason Bourne here, where you have someone who's like Jason Bourne is very smart, but he's dulled himself so much in this movie. You don't see that razor sharp intelligence as much, whereas her, she gives that off and you see why they make such great, you know, adversaries in this film. It's interesting that he, I, I wrote down, he went back to that hotel where he made that first assassination. Um, It did feel like it was a sloppy move for Bourne. And it's also like the same about jumping into the river after um, Maria died as well. Like it, it seemed like he did make a couple of mistakes. Yeah, well, it does feel like Bourne is sort of a raw, exposed nerve in this movie. And I feel like, you know, when you look at his past missions and what he was so capable at, they weren't personal. All of this is stemming from one, you know, a couple of things. One, the death of Marie, but also um, the fact that he's having these fragments of memory that he doesn't even know if he's innocent or guilty. I think that's, um, a, I think he does make a lot of, I think you're absolutely spot on, Scott. He makes a lot of um, mistakes in this film, especially as the film continues. So you're right, going back to the Hotel Brecker is a kind of almost needlessly risky move, but it is needed because he, he really can't do anything else at that point. He really needs to know what happened in that hotel room. And I, I love, 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 just before the car chase begins, which I'm sure we'll get to in a bit, but it might be the best car chase ever put on film. But the, the, just before then, he goes through that supermarket in Russia and he basically, by that point, he's not concealed. He's not, be, I know he's been shot by this point and he's limping, but he just smashes the vodka bottles off the shelf. It's like this man is slowly breaking apart in front of our eyes. And it's really interesting what you said, Cam, about him being reborn, because this film actually has probably at least two of those sequences. So it's kind of obvious symbolism, but, you know, let's not forget this is a, a mainstream action movie. But mm -hmm. when he chooses the tunnel at the end, after um, Carl Urban's character has um, smashed into the, the central part of that tunnel, he chooses to go up into the light. So that's his that's his second rebirth. But it's almost like the film is channeling him to that point. He has to get to that point where he's lost everything, you know, Marie. And he's lost kind of what makes him Jason Bourne, that efficiency. And he's a broken man. And it's what's left then. And I think that's also something that informed, you know, we, going back to the what people say um, Bond borrowed from Bourne. I think it, even though Casino Royale is obviously heavily based on the Ian Fleming novel, the film produce and the, the the Bond novels do present a quite vulnerable Bond at times, but Casino Royale is the first time we ever saw Bond broken down. You know, he's, even he says, yeah, that you know he's got nothing, he's got no armor left. You've stripped it from me, and it's the same kind of trajectory that kept with the character. We're allowed to see the character fail, and Bond does that in Casino Royale as well. Right. Well, Jason Bourne at that scene in the supermarket at the end, by that point, he is a wounded animal. He's in a corner. He is just trying to survive. He's, he has lost all of his skill, basically. Um, although he does obviously survive. I do want to make a mention, though, this is our second supermarket now. <laughs> mm. You're very nostalgic for the days of Harry Palmer, aren't you, Scott? I, I, I certainly am. So apparently a lot of spy work does happen in supermarkets. We were wrong when we took the mickey out of it last time. So... Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think the fact that we see Bourne a little unsteady and shaky actually adds to the unpredictability of the character because you have that scene, for example, where he's on the rooftop and he has the sniper rifle aimed at Joan Allen. 
I don't know that I would buy the danger of that sequence if it's a Bourne who's more in control because I would go, ah, eh, he's not going to pull the trigger. But in that situation, because Bourne seems so unstable, he might, which I think actually amps up the tension of that scene. Now, before we move on to sort of the side characters and, and the bad guys for the film, as it were, has anyone got any final thoughts on Matt Damon's performance? I think it's really interesting that we've just spent, what is it, must be about 15 minutes doing a character analysis of Jason Bourne, who, you know, is a is a byword for blockbuster action movie uh, making. And, you know, I think it further supports why I why I love this movie so much, because it is a character piece. Um, you, you, you're absolutely right. We, are, we get almost exclusively his point of view. I think that's something so overlooked, even in like, you know, what's apparently an ephemeral kind of action movie um, that we actually don't break from his point of view very often. And when we do, it's kind of like we feel in very murky territory. So it's why we trust Joan Allen, because we get her point of view. And it's, you know, why we don't trust Brian Cox, who I'm sure we'll get to in a bit, because when we break to his point of view, he does something very, very horrible and unforgivable. So, um, yeah, it's for the most of the time we are in Jason, even though we can't get inside his head. I think Matt Damon's performance does does the best job we possibly can of seeing everything through his eyes. And anything you can? I agree 100% though. Just the ability to see through his eyes is so invaluable in a movie like this because as I kind of said earlier, it's almost impossible to see most of the Bond movies through Bond's eyes because I'll never be James Bond no matter how hard I try. Um, Whereas Jason Bourne, it somehow allows you to do that. And because you get moments of vulnerability throughout, it's actually like recognizable human emotion that you can tie yourself to as well. And Matt Damon brings so much with, you know, such a basically suppressed character that I find it consistently riveting. This type of character can be so boring, actually. This type of character can be so boring if done badly. It's interesting that someone who is a hyper-capable assassin is so approachable. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Um, Well, let's move on to some of the other characters. I want to make a shout-out to Franca Patente as Marie. I was really excited in my notes to say, oh, she's back. And then the next note was, and she's gone. That's a shame. It is. I, I, yeah. I do have a problem with killing your female lead just because she's going to get in the way of the story. And it happens again with the most, I think it's the most recent um, Bourne film. So um, I'm not going to name the character, but um, for fear, just in case people haven't seen it. But it's, uh, and it is the whole James Bond thing, isn't it? You know, James Bond can't be in a long-term relationship with a woman. She's going to end up dead. So we'll see how it works out in No Time to Die. But I do get kind of... It was okay to do it once in this film, and it does really, really work for this film for me. It is that it is that galvanizing action. It really propels Bourne through the rest of the movie. But to do it again in the Bourne franchise, I think was a misstep. But in this film, I think it, it, they get away with it. I think in 2004, it's viewed very differently than now. I don't think this would happen in this way if this movie were made now, because people have become much more aware of the concept of fridging uh, female characters, yeah. which, is a, which is a term that um, stems from a Green Lantern comic where the Green Lantern's girlfriend was murdered and left in a fridge um, as a means of motivating his character. And that's something that, you know, in this era of 2004, 
wasn't as recognized as an issue, but I remember, you know, Deadpool 2 came out uh, just a couple of years ago and the writers got so much flack in the press about going to that trope. So in terms of using this trope, I look at the film of the born supremacy and I go, this film is fantastic and incredibly insightful into its character and it achieves something really special. So I can go, okay, I can let this one go, but if this movie were made now, that wouldn't be the case. It would get much more, I think, um, much more criticisms lobbed at it for it. For me, I I just feel like it's a, it's a shame to lose the character this, this, this early on in what obviously did become a longer franchise, although I know they weren't looking to make any more after this. And it did certainly propel Bourne through the story. I just feel like there could have been other ways to separate them. And you said in the book, Can, that they do. She's captured, I believe. Yeah, she's captured, but she isn't killed. Not like this. Not in the first handful of pages. And you know, they've you've invested so much in this character from the first movie that yeah, it, it kind of stings. Uh, for me, I think the franchise that gets it right, although it doesn't get everything right, and I didn't actually mention it earlier on in spy films I love, but I I have a a, a massive appreciation for the Mission Impossible series, and. The fact that he marries Michelle Monaghan's character, who obviously she appears in a small, fairly um, forgettable role in this film, but I do love that actress. Um, so she's she's she marries him in Mission Impossible Three, and so how do you solve a problem like your main alpha male action hero getting married? Well, you kind of just remove her from the film, but she's still married to him in one, and then she's not mentioned at all, and then, oh, actually, it turns out they split up, but she's still around, and she still has some agency in the next one. So I think that's a that's a, a more progressive way of, of dealing with the issue, um, which perhaps um, the Bond series maybe has the confidence to just not kill off um i've just forgotten her name madeline swan mm-hmm. uh f- fairly quickly i'm pretty sure she's going to be alive by the end of no time to die but it'll be interesting to see where they are with that i feel the same way and you know franca patente was so likable in that role that it's just kind of a bummer but what about some of the other characters let's shift over to joan allen who i think is like maybe the mvp of additions for this franchise she's probably the only one i come away from this film thinking about uh, which is a shame for people like Carl Urban and, and Julia Stiles, who are both big actors that just didn't do much in this film for me particularly. But um, yeah, Joan, as soon as she turns up as as Pamela Landy, she, like you said earlier, Cam, feels like she's she's owning it. Like it's a definite case of someone who's hyper capable in their job. I love that this whole plot stems from basically just a mess of this operation gone bad and how this ties into Bourne's past. But it's like everyone involved in this plot is all just kind of trying to deal with bad circumstances. And, you know, Bourne is obviously being framed and it's just so messy. And I kind of love that as opposed to these very specific James Bond stories of, you know, evil millionaire has established base that is stealing rocket ships. The Bourne stories are a mess and intentionally so. I think I love Joan Allen, the actress. I particularly love her in, even though she doesn't get anywhere near as much to do in that film as this one, but I love her in Face Off. Um, so, but I, I love her full stop in anything, um, including, you know, uh, more kind of arty things. Uh, but um, I, I, I think what gets us on her side immediately is because the other characters, particularly Brian Cox, are such outrageous. When I say outrageous, mm, for 2004, would it have been outrageous? Misogynist? 
He he in one of his first, in his first scene between the two when they're in an interrogation room and that that I love that sequence because he looks like almost amused that he's there and she's in that position of power. He says to her, "You talk about this stuff like you read it in a book," and then she absolutely reads him uh, to filth. Um, <laughs> um, but and and then um, he also you know he makes he makes comments which are you wouldn't say to a man. So he says, you know, you're in a big puddle of, uh, begins with an S, you don't have the shoes for it. Would you say that to yeah. a man? And I, I think even in 2004, I think we got the idea that Brian Cox did not like women very much. Um, and, and the other, she was re she'd really had to fight to get to the position that she was in as deputy director. So um, I think that gets us on her side immediately. And you've also got to think, at the end of the day, Joan Allen is working on the side of the angels, as they would say. Um, much as Jason Bourne is our lead, she is working for the good guys. She's also responding to Bourne in a much more human way because she'll listen to what he says and think, okay, this makes logical sense. Versus like Brian Cox is on full cleanup duty and is just steamrolling over any human element. I think it's really interesting what you've just said, Scott, working for the good guys, because as you talked about in your identity episode, you know, essentially, yeah, Conklin and co. The CIA were painted as the villains, really, not necessarily to be trusted. And although, you know, they're self-interested people who are the villains here, a bit like the Bond series refuses to kind of side with anyone geopolitically. They, Brian Cox and, you know, Chris Cooper's character got greedy um, particularly Brian Cox's character. So they're not really re fully representative of the CIA. But I think this film is pretty anti-authoritarian at times. And so why do we trust Joan Allen's character quite as soon as we see her compared with, you know, and for, for that matter, you know, Bourne doesn't warm to her perhaps as quickly as we do as the audience. But I, 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 do, I, do, think it's, I do think it's a really, I do think it's really clever writing and performance that makes us trust her whereas to be honest everyone else in the cia you know in these movies let let's be skeptical about is there anything trustworthy about brian cox <laughs> <laughs> no <laughs> like that's a guy who you know an actor who i love and he's so much fun in like x2 x-men united or um rise of the planet of the apes but he's so good at playing these sleazy guys. I would love to see him in a movie like this where he had a little bit of that, um, you know, 25th hour kind of dignity and honesty to him. But I tell you, as a villain, I really enjoyed just watching this guy stew throughout this movie, knowing that this is all a huge mess that he's created. I love it too. Um, I mean, he's the action I referred to earlier on, which is unforgivable, is he kills Gabriel Mann, uh, who I also had a thing for uh, back in back in the early two thousands. He was in there uh, um, that cinematic classic, and I don't. There's no irony there. Josie and the Pussycats. Uh, I oh, don't. Yeah. I, I, no. I doubt you. There's a, there's a vague spy element to that one, perhaps. We, <laughs> but um, but no, not really. Uh, but yeah. So uh, Gabriel Mann was kind of a, a, a not a, had not a massive amount of screen time in that movie. But and he doesn't have a lot to do in this one, to be honest. Apart from get his neck broken by Brian Cox in a cupboard. Uh, so so yeah. But no, he is absolutely disgraceful in this film. He is he, he's he's completely unsympathetic 100 percent 
I think he makes an interesting contrast to um, Carl Urban. No, Scott, you said Carl Urban. You don't remember as well, but Carl Urban is the other main villain of this movie. And um, when you have Brian Cox, who looks so oily and untrustworthy, he makes a good com- uh, like comparison point for Carl Urban, who has none of those qualities. He's someone you almost see through. Yeah, he's entirely blank. Yeah. Well, I actually, again, I think that I, I, I thought that previously, but then on my rewatch today, I think that Carl Urban's character, even though he says almost nothing, um, you know, apart from screaming FSB, FSB, um, <laughs> repeatedly when he's uh, being held by the Russian police on that bridge after he's just monumentally failed to shoot Jason Bourne in the head and has just shot him on the shoulder. So that's kind of, kind of the only naff bit about his character. But, um, you know, he actually works for, what, it, what does the FSB stand for? Is it Federal Security Bureau or something like that? The modern KGB? So he's actually a KGB agent, but he's obviously freelancing for, or he's got a KGB identity, it's never confirmed, but he's obviously freelancing for dodgy oil oligarchs. Um, and um, I love, one of my favourite scenes in the whole film, and I, I know it's kind of, you know, very succinct, um, his characterization, but I love the fact that you see him in a nightclub and he's downing shots, looking pretty disinterested in everything around him, even though he's draped with beautiful women. And, so, you know, so far so cliched, you know, he's a bad guy, that's what they do. But then it turns out he's in this nightclub in broad, and now he goes outside and it's broad daylight. For me, I think that says a lot about the, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not going to judge. If you are the sorts of people, um, Cam and Scott, who, you know, go to nightclubs uh, during the day and uh, get draped with beautiful people and do shots before lunchtime, then that's absolutely fine. But, you know, I think it's quite an unusual um, an unusual bit in the film. Why did Paul Greengrass decide to have him emerge during the day? I think he's got the same kind of soul erosion going on that Jason Bourne has. You know, he hates what he does. He just happens to be not as good as Jason Bourne, but pretty good at the job he does. And he's drowning his sorrows in drink. And I think the whole purpose of his character is just to kind of say, this is, you know, another Jason Bourne. They are the same. And that's what gives that final, you know, car chase. It's it's, it's, uh, energy, I think. The same, but not quite as good. Yeah, he's not not quite as good. I mean, he shoots the wrong person in the head in the car. Let's be honest. Um, and then, you know, he's, he, I know he's only using a handgun, but, you know, Jason, I think even I could hit Jason Bourne, for God's sake, as he's walking along that snowy canal in a dark, dark coat. You know, he's not exactly that hard a target to hit, is he? Well, he uses one arm. That's his problem. Yeah, true, true, mm. true. Sorry, I mentioned this earlier, Cam. Was Carl Urban's outfit kind of your inspiration for what you were wearing around that time? I know you went through your goth phase around this sort of peak period. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. The cure period. Um, uh, no, I was, I think doing that well before I saw the born supremacy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but let's talk about that car chase because that car chase, uh, you know, you referenced it earlier, David saying it's one of the all time great car chases. I'd actually forgotten how good it was. I mean, I remembered it being one of the selling points of the movie, but I was blown away at the direction of this sequence. I think what makes that car chase so successful is because like a lot of other car chases that are held up as quite iconic, like the one in the French Connection, for instance, and some of the, some of the Bond chases too, it's in a very public space. 
And even now, I don't know how they got the clearances to do that intricate, you know, very destructive car chase in the center of Moscow around all the iconic sites. So you can see St. Basil's Cathedral in the background. You can see the railway station. And it, it's, it's, it's got that tension because at any point, a car could come out the other end. Um, you know, pedestrians could get in the way. And that's one of the themes of the film, isn't it? That Jason Bourne really doesn't want to do harm to innocent people. So I, I think that's what makes that car chase so uh so impactful for me yeah i mean just the amount well you know impact is a great word because a lot of car chases feel a little too slick and this one just feels so impactful because things are just smashing all over the place the way the camera work is kind of spinning you around while also keeping you very cognizant of what is going on moment to moment it's kind of dizzying, but at the same time, you just because of the soundtrack and everything, you're getting these hits left, right, and center. So you, fe- you know, emerge from this whole car chase feeling exhausted. Yeah, I would. I mean, I'll jump in on that one. I didn't really remember this car chase from my initial watch. So it's going back into it today to see it was a complete thrill for me because it felt like it was a tennis match. I was just constantly like pinging back and forth on the screen, seeing what's going on. But you're right, Cam. I never lost track which is a good thing when it comes to action shots and, and, and sequences. And you did mention as well, the score is fantastic. The, mm-hmm. Do you know what the cue is called? I, I'm a soundtrack geek. Um, and I, I, uh, I, I played that soundtrack again and again and again. That score, that cue for that sequence is called Bim Bam Smash, which I think says, you know, not the most sophisticated titling from John Powell there, but I think it pretty much, you know, says what it does. Um, and um, I actually used that uh, track as a, a as a running track for years and years, and that's the track that I tend to play if I'm really kind of like, oh god, I've got six minutes left and I've got no energy left. That's what I'm going to stick on. Or you want to uh, wake up your friends asleep upstairs? Yeah, it's it, it's it, it's. I, I think this. I think the score as a whole is. Um, Dare I say it, because I love that score to pieces, but it worked really well as wallpaper. And it's quite a difficult one to listen to on its own. And if I do put it on in the car, (laughs) you know, while my husband's there, he kind of feels anxious. And it's just like, we can't listen to this. Um, So yeah, it wakes people up, but it also kind of makes people feel really, really nervous. And by wallpaper, I mean it as a compliment, because... It's, it's there the whole time. And apart from perhaps in that last sequence, you don't really notice it most of the time, but it's so important for constantly changing the mood. And there are whole sequences in this film that are silent as far as dialogue's concerned. And you're like, I mean, one of my favorite scenes in the film that's on my rewatch this morning was when he works out where Pamela's staying in the hotel. And apart from talking to the reception clerks, none of the none of it is spoken and the music changes tempo changes pitch changes everything so intricately during that um and it it really helps shift the mood yeah it's actually i think a really great score because it's memorable without being intrusive um it's something that like watching these born movies revisiting them for this podcast Every time that Bourne theme pops up, I'm like, oh, yeah, like this really does set a tone. And it's actually fairly memorable when I listen to it, but it doesn't overwhelm the action the way. I mean, look, the Bond theme overwhelms the action, I think, to great effect. And I'm not that's not a complaint or a criticism, but this is doing something very different. 
Yeah, I completely agree. It's it's certainly a scene that I'm going to remember going forward. And I did make a note when I was rewatching the film. I feel like Mission Impossible Fallout with the motorcycle chase uh, took a lot from this sequence. Yeah, I could see that for sure. Yeah. 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 And I love some of the other action, you know, the whole scene on the bridge with him hanging off the bridge with the hook and everything. This movie does action very well. It's not like those, for the most part, grand scale action set pieces, the way that the Bourne or that the way that the Bond franchise would do. But they create these moments that feel very epic in scene in like scenarios that are kind of mundane you know just like a chase in a railway station or on a bridge on a boat that sort of thing i think that's another one of those things that people say that bond stole from this because um and you you spoke you talked about this already in your identity episode and i found it really interesting when you were talking about the locations that the identity film takes place in they're actually kind of corridors and stairwells and we get that here again there are quite a lot of stairwells in this film and casino royale was bold enough to have a fight in a stairwell i mean it starts with a fight in a toilet and i could talk till the cows came home about toilet there are a lot of toilets in this film as well (laughs) there are a lot of toilets in spy films full stop it's really, I don't know if you guys have ever, have you ever noticed how many toilets there are in spy films? Yeah, there's two James Bonds that are introduced in toilet scenes. So yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, that, that's, that's the, the I, I wrote a lot about that when I came to write about um, uh, Goldeneye Casino Royale. So Martin Campbell must have a thing about toilets. Uh, but obviously in, in spy films generally, I mean, Mission, you just mentioned Mission Impossible Fallout. I think the best hand-to-hand fight in that film takes place in the men's bathroom. Yeah. And, you know, there's obviously, there's, there's actually a lot of, believe it or not, there's actually a lot of academic writing on what men's bathrooms mean in movies. And there are all kinds of, uh, you know, homoerotic subtexts and tons of stuff, basically. Um, but, you know, in terms of a, sto- a spy story, you know, People have to go places where they're not necessarily going to be seen. So it's not always going to be so public. And I think what this film does brilliantly is it kind of has that mixture of where you've got lots of crowds. So you've got the go and uh, the the um, car chase uh, where Marie dies. And then you've got the Moscow car chase. But a lot of the times um, these things are taking place in broad de- in broad daylight or at night. But places where, you know, there are lots of people, but you wouldn't necessarily notice someone doing something spy-like. So that sequence where he kind of climbs back, I love that shot where he climbs back on the bridge and he's limping, but he tries to kind of downplay it. And there is someone who looks strange at him, but then just carries on as if everything's kind of normal. Um, so yeah, I think Bond did take a little bit of inspiration from that, but Bond does tend to, action sequences tend to happen in more glamorous locations in Bond movies. But this, this I think gets the mix spot on. Bang on, yeah, for sure. I'm all for a fight in a toilet. It would make the experience a bit more exciting, at least. Well, you know, you think about it. You were talking earlier about Joan Allen's character and how you have these scenes where um, it is sort of her wading into this business of men, as it were, and it's all this shady business. Um, But that kind of goes back to old spycraft, where it was an entirely almost male-driven profession, uh, for the most part, and especially when it came to the higher powers. And what is more the sort of men's location than a men's bathroom, right? Absolutely. And Joan Allen isn't going to get in there. Um, although, just, just, to, just to go back, to, I can't resist. I, I made so many notes about Pamela Landy, and sorry if this is jumping back. But what I noticed in the film is that she's 
you know, we said that this is very focused around Jason Bourne and almost entirely his point of view, but she has kind of her own narrative trajectory in this film. And so, and but they do kind of, um, they do kind of coincide. And there's this really interesting bit uh, where a character says, have you forgotten what happened in Berlin? And Bourne's listening to that, um, I can't remember which character is telling Pamela Landy that, but then that mm -hmm. triggers his memories of what happened in Berlin. So they've both had a traumatizing event in Berlin. Um, and I thought that was really interesting that in that sequence, and again, the editing is fantastic, but in that sequence, the two characters are linked. They've had this same trauma. They've had a, a, a traumatizing event in, two, in Berlin. Two people have died and they're both trying to kind of work out what that means. So it's almost like Bourne's story is also her story. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that the second, I would say the second protagonist in the film um, is billed seventh on the list. Oh, that's <laughs> terrible. That's terrible. That is usually an agent thing. It just means her agents weren't quite as good as some of the other ones. Mm. Yeah, I've got the DVD box in front of me and it's an and Joan Allen. So I never quite understand those things. Uh, maybe you guys do, but uh, I, I, that probably does mean that she was a bigger name and that the agent was like, we need a special credit. Is that how those things work? Yeah, yeah. The it's entirely negotiated by the agents. And so they might have said, well, she can have third or fourth billing, but having the end is actually more prestigious than being listed third or fourth. So, ah. And that would actually make sense as seventh on the list of her being in the end, because from number eight onwards, they're sort of inconsequential characters, I would say. Right. Or, poor Michelle Monaghan down there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, or uh, yeah, Martin's uh, Sokas, um, who shows up as the uh, the other um, Treadstone agent in this movie. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's uh, you don't want to be listed that low. I really like Martin Sokas's character, um, but and I do kind of feel bad that he ends up dead. Although it's kind of like, what's his motivation there? Is it just that he wants to save face with his former employer, or maybe he's still working for the CIA? I didn't quite get that character to be honest. I know he's not in it very long. Because he, he essentially calls it in, but then appears quite remorseful. What did you guys think of him? I, I don't get why they didn't try and send him after Bourne, because he's the most trained person to do so. But mm. what do I Maybe know? he's retired, Scott. He's living the good life. <laughs> <laughs> Hanging out in supermarkets with the rest of them. Yeah, that's right. I, I really like this character too, but it's kind of that tradition that the Bourne franchise had in the first one of have a really memorable you know, striking looking character actor play a very small role and they will stick with you. So like, I feel like if this role had been played by a different actor, you'd be like, oh yeah, he was cool in his one fight scene, but I don't really think about him. The fact that it's played really well, the character pops. It only came back to me as I was watching it as well. But I remember thinking at the time, oh, I've just seen Carl Urban and Martin Kirk Sokas in Lord of the Rings. So I, 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 uh, I didn't scour IMDb for any more, but I just thought, oh, that they were kind of big names at the time. And I, I did really, really, another one, sorry. I did really, really fancy Carl Urban at the time as well. <laughs> two, two of the people that uh, caught your interest in this film didn't end up too well. No, it must be that whole kind of bury the gays trope. So, you know, like, um, so, you know, like uh, fridging women 
uh, gays tend to end up. I'm not saying that either character is a gay, although actually, now I think about it, Carl Urban doesn't look very happy to be surrounded by women and he's more interested in <laughs> drowning his sorrows in vodka. And Martin Sokus, you know, does have a taste for interior design, just to be rampantly stereotypical there just for a moment. I do quite like his apartment. Uh, so um, <laughs> maybe they are gay, um, but uh, yeah, m maybe that's why they end up dead. Because, you know, until re and even now, you know, if you've got a gay character in a, in a, in a, in a mainstream narrative anyway, chances are they're not going to live to the end credits. Looking, right. at, looking at you, Star Trek Discovery. Oh, yeah. Okay, folks, before we get on to the knock list, I want to just see if anyone has any final thoughts on the film. Cam, what have you got for me? Um, I thought that the term Nesky Files um, was very reminiscent of the Penske Files from Seinfeld, and I kept laughing every time they said it. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I didn't make that connection. <laughs> but uh, on a more serious note, um, yeah, what I really loved about this movie was the way it expanded the world of Jason Bourne. It felt uh, much more kind of straight ahead in the first film. We got little bits like Conklin and the concept of Treadstone, but this movie just really blows the, the kind of the doors open for the future of the franchise, where it is this expansive world of intrigue. Um, Kind of like the James Bond world, which is very, uh, quite large and, you know, crazy. And so I'm looking forward to going into Ultimatum and seeing how that sort of expanded worldview pays off in the future. Because having flashbacks to Conklin in this movie and all the intrigue going on, I can't wait to see how Ultimatum pays it all off. And what about yourself, David? I'd just like to return to the ending because I think it's such a bold move to end an action movie. Obviously, you have the the massive car chase, and then you really need a breather after that car chase. But I think it's really brave for them to end in that apartment um, of that girl. And for, I, for me, that, that ending me meant an awful lot to me then because it's Jason Bourne, as I said earlier, it's almost like a coming out scene of a sense. He's at least confiding in somebody else. It's interesting that it's another girl because he did the same thing with Marie. So it'd be interesting if it had been a, a boy, if it had been a son. I don't know if that would have changed the dynamics slightly. But he's helping someone with... He, he's there, really, to help himself. But he's also there to help someone else get past their own trauma. So his confession of, you know, I killed them. Um, and it, 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 he refers to the photograph that she's got on the side. And I thought there was an... It, it brought to mind the opening sequence of Casino Royale two years later... Where, and it's such a brilliant piece of editing in Casino Royale, where Bond shoots Dryden in his office. Remember the black and white sequence at the start of Casino Royale? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he shoots Dryden, and there's this, it's like only a few frames, you only briefly glimpse it, but you see Dryden with the rest of his family, and it's like Bond doesn't care. Whereas in this case, now, you know, what's changed? We never, you know, why did getting his amnesia from the first film kind of suddenly make him a more decent human being? But it goes back to what Marie says just before she gets shot in the head. Um, you know, um, so Bourne says, we don't have a choice. Yes, you do. And I think it is all, a, for, for me, the Bourne supremacy, yes, it's a fun action film and so on and so forth. 
But for me, at least, it's more than that. It's about taking control of your own life. So sorry to end on a kind of deep and meaningful note there, everybody. Uh, but th that's why. I will just say one one final, final thing for me. My husband hates this movie. <laughs> so it's not like it's not like just because you're gay means you love the Bourne films. He always says that basically he never knows what's going on. And I, I kind of get that because you know, regardless of what Letterbox say, if you actually stretch this film out to its, you know, what's really going on, you know, they're not really, it's like, it's like classic Hitchcock. They're not interested in all those files. It's like Brian Cox is like, just, you know, reveals basically what these files entail and they spent CIA money on things they, you know, buying up leases for oil wells and blah, blah, blah. And superficially, that's kind of the story of the world is not enough. Um, you know, from from a few years, the Bond film from a few years before, mm -hmm. um, you know, stolen files, oil oligarchs and all that kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, that's not the story, is it, essentially? Um, I think that even it, I think when I saw this film the first time, I don't think I really knew what was going on with all the files and that sort of thing. But I do I do think it's one of those one of those examples of a of a blockbuster action movie actually being. Um, so effective because it is a character study more than anything else. Right. Uh, well, just for me then, I firstly noted that Bourne does like climbing down and up buildings. Yep. Seems to have a passion for that. Um, the second thing was, I do think Julia Stiles is once again wasted in this film. Yeah, it's a minor role. She gets some cool stuff to do where she has to meet up with Bourne, but yeah, that character thankfully comes back in the next one and we'll get to track what she does in that one maybe it's more interesting yeah and lastly is more of a question for cam and for you david um i david i don't know if you recall but last film we found out that uh jason Bourne's canadian identity was oh it was jay something it, wasn't it paul, no, it was... paul k paul k that was it I've, con I've conflated the two. I've portmanteaued it. Yeah, Jay. Um, yeah, Paul K. Hmm. Yeah. There's actually, I'm pretty, isn't there a comedian called Paul K? Oh, no, it's Peter K. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that would be a whole different story. <laughs> it's funny you should say that because now we obviously get another name for Bourne, which is his original name, his birth name, supposedly at least, anyway, at this point, uh, which is David Webb. Now, Cam. Yeah. What's the better name of the two? David Webb. Webb is a cooler last name than K. So you'd rather have that on uh, his Canadian passport? Yes, because K is basically just like saying, okay. <laughs> it's it's the epitome of mediocre. Is that like the equivalent of, what would it be here? Like, we don't say, we, there's no one actually called Joe Bloggs, but John Smith. Is that kind of the Canadian equivalent? Even John Smith is kind of used in like, well, it's the name of a, of a stout at least, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It has some importance here, whereas, like, I don't know what would be the worst thing here. It's like, I don't know. Yeah. Isn't that the point, though, that he's supposed to be, like, the most... And this character could... Jason Bourne could so easily be a boring character, as you said earlier, but isn't that the point that he's... He's almost supposed to be a nobody... Yeah, it could be anybody, couldn't it? Because as it's explored in the next film, you know, he doesn't have gadgets like Bond and all that kind of stuff. And I think this is probably where the wish fulfillment of this character comes in with a lot of people. We all feel like, and, and, and you guys mentioned it earlier, we all feel like we could be Jason Bourne. So whether you're David Webb or David Lobrigellis from the West Midlands in the UK, uh, we feel, and you know, it, it's pointed out that he's from Missouri. Now my US geography is not very good, but is that sort of, sort of South? Where is that in the USA? 
Uh, pass. No, okay. None of, none of us know the answer to that one. But you know, it's 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 almost irrelevant in a sense, isn't it? Because I think with Bourne, he's so he refuses to put down roots, and you know, obviously that's because he's always on the run. Um, and again, that's something else that appears probably to queer people like me. You know, you, that whole persecution kind of feeling. Uh, you know, he moves around all the time. He's never going to be. And even Pamela says at one point, I doubt Bourne's in Naples, ready to start a family. It's almost a throwaway line, but Bourne will always be on the move. So it's almost like to help to help him with that, he, he, he probably does help that he has the most boring names imaginable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, okay. This is the bit I've been looking forward to tackling now because there's three of us and there's never been three of us on the podcast, all right? Oh, pressure, but pressure. Here is the question, the ultimate question, which is, can David, does this film make the knock list? Well, guest honor, you get to go first, David. Oh, no. Um, I, 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 actually, it's probably not a spoiler at all um, because I think I gave it away within the first five minutes of this. <laughs> that I, this, this is definitely my top five spy films of all time. Um, and as I don't have anywhere near a strong attachment to any of the other Bourne films. I like the next one, but I don't really like the others. But this one for me is, and perhaps it is because of the time of my the time in my life that I was watching this, um, that I have such a strong association with it. So I, I think if we if we look at the criteria, and I might need a recap of this one, um, but um, if we look at the criteria for it being a spy film. I think it does everything that a spy film should. It's all about concealment and aliases. Um, you know, there are secret codes. Essentially, Bourne is faking it for the entire... More than any other character, he has to fake it because he actually doesn't know who he is authentically. So he has no authentic self. He's completely making it up as he goes along. There's that whole... The whole soul erosion aspect... You know, he doesn't really, he does have get some vodka, but it's more as a weapon later on. So he's not like high living like Bond, but he's definitely having his soul eroded by things he's done. And for me, I think the Bourne films do a really good job, even more than James Bond, of even more than the recent James Bond films, of setting a character apart from the rest of society. So, you know, it's, you know, at its most extreme form, it's socially unacceptable to go around shooting people. Hmm. Uh, which is what spies often do, mm-hmm. or at least they do on in films. So for me, I think Jason Bourne might be the more even a even a better spy character, not necessarily a better spy, but a better spy character than James Bond. Controversial. And that's a bold thing to say. Controversial. Oh. All right, Cam Smith, you're up. Yes, uh, it's an in for me as well. I am giving this one my stamp of approval. Um, I think that this movie is very important in defining the Jason Bourne films. I think the first one was a really good first step. I enjoyed it a lot, but it didn't quite make the knock list. To me, this one, just on a character level, on a craftsmanship level, is that extra step more. And I mean, this really is defining a new type of spy film that is going to influence countless films in Hollywood for better or for ba- or for worse and so to me, this is a very important movie on that level, but it's also just a ripping entertainment with amazing action sequences and really, really great direction from Paul Greengrass. So yeah, it's a, you know, affirmative for me. Okay. Now this is where I was slightly scared. Now for me, naturally, I feel like this is a yes, 
there's something in my gut that says, yes, this is a spy film you could recommend to people to get an idea of what the best spy films are. A part of me almost feels like I should hold out for the ultimatum because it seems to be going in this sort of improvement of quality over the, these two films. But and why can't they both be in? You're, you're, you're talking sense there, Cam. You're talking sense. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I left the film going, it should be. I just wonder if. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to make a mental note for when we get round to covering Ultimatum to go back to this thought and uh, whether I should have waited, even though it could right. be both. But uh, yes, it is a yes from me as well. Very nice. Very nice. Well, that's Yay. awesome. <laughs> I was just going to say um, Zoo Weekly, which is the quote on the back of my DVD copy, which I'm holding in my hand. Um, for the benefit of anyone who didn't live in the UK in the early 2000s, there were a, 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 a rash I think that's the right word. There were a rash of uh, men's periodicals really aimed at teenage boys because they usually had um, fairly chesty ladies on the front and inside. But Zoo Weekly was one of those, said that the Bourne supremacy was intelligent, compelling and utterly brilliant. So, Which um, is not regard- something you could say for Zoo magazine. <laughs> well, exactly. That's <laughs> You've stolen my punchline. <laughs> but, oh, uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> That's brilliant. Um, so, but yeah. Um, so we, I, I'm, I'm heartened by the fact we agree with uh, lads mags of the early noughties. I'm gonna, I'm gonna hide my subscription to Zoo magazine. Uh, <laughs> I'm in not, shame. Again, I'm not gonna judge. I'm not gonna judge. You know, but as a, as a gay man growing up at that time, I clearly looked down my nose at such um, perverse publications. While at the same time. Um, feeling greatly enamoured and having quite warm feelings towards Matt Damon, Carl Urban and the rest. Well, there you have it, folks. It sounds like a yes, yes, and a yes. So the Bourne Supremacy is going on the knock list. And with that revelation, the dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified. Now, before we talk about what we're doing next week, I want to take a second to talk about another podcast. And that is the Not Before coffee podcast hosted by a good friend of the show ray uh she has recently launched her show and we think it's fantastic so just take a couple of seconds here to listen to her ad hi i'm ray self-confessed bookworm film addict hermit long-time depression sufferer and caffeine fiend in not before coffee i talk about everything from books tv and movies to the more serious topics like my own personal journey through life, struggling with various mental health issues. But not until I've had at least three mugs of the roasted bean and temporarily sated my long-term addiction. So, if you want to get to know more about me and all the ways I pass my time during the week, not including work, and you fancy the idea of hearing me talk about the things that interest me, new books, old books, TV and movies of all kinds, plus the weird and wonderful of my everyday, and how I got into writing about cars for a living, despite not having a driving license, then tune in to Not Before Coffee. Found where all good podcasts are. So pretty much everywhere. There you go, folks. We love Not Before Coffee here on the podcast. I love coffee myself. I am a caffeine fan. Not so much coffee, but I am a fan of podcasts with the word coffee in the title. (laughs) Um, So Cam, what are we doing next week? 
we are going to tackle the 1975 espionage drama Three Days of the Condor, starring Robert Redford. I've never seen it, and I'm very excited about tackling it. I've never seen it. David, have you ever seen it? No, I haven't seen it. It's on my to-watch list, so uh, maybe I'll uh, finally get hold of a copy. I hear it's great, so I think that's probably a pretty strong recommendation in its favor. So there you go. So before we talk about us, David, where can people go to hear more about you? Yes, you can find my queer takes on James Bond, and there's some other stuff about uh, spies on there as well, Um, but mostly James Bond films, books, and video games, including GoldenEye 007, which I spent about ooh, about 500 hours of my life on uh, back when it was released. Um, so yeah, you can find my queer takes on that at licensetoqueer.com. License is spelt in the British English way, the way it is in the 1989 film title for the Timothy Dalton James Bond film. So L-I-C-E-N-C-E, license, toqueer.com. Com. That's T-O and then queer, as in the umbrella term for LGBTQ+. And I'm also very active on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, you, of course, don't have to be queer to follow along. Uh, we've got I've got lots and lots of allies that, as I said, that at the start of this podcast, the James Bond community is, uh, is, is very inclusive. But I started the website because I noticed that there weren't many out queer voices and a lot of the Bond fandom tended to be male, uh, white, uh, straight. And I thought, you know, although I am uh, male-ish, and uh, white, um, then I'm at least uh, different in, in in some way, and uh, it's it's been really really heartening to interact with such a, a wide range of Bond fans. So if you want to have a read of my pieces, uh, please head along over to that website or contact me on Twitter. And especially if you want to actually write something yourself, um, I've started putting other people's contributions on the site now, which is really really lovely. Very nice, very nice. I mean, we connected through the blog. That's what we first spoke about. I've really enjoyed reading some of the pieces on there. What have you got coming up, David? Um, Full-time work is somewhat hectic at the moment. Uh, But so my to-do list for Licensed to Queer is uh, is growing by the day. But um, my priority at the moment is to do my next queer review. So, so far I've done 10 queer reviews and what what a queer review is is explained in more detail on the website but essentially i break each one um into different sections like the bond character himself the villains the girls the allies um and any kind of camp aspects as well which is always fun to write about um and then i kind of come up with a rating at the end i use you may have heard of the kinsey scale from the late Mm 1940s the idea that People are not exclusively homosexual or heterosexual. There's kind of a scale, but I use it in a different sense. It's like, how how queer is this Bond film? So they range from, uh, I think the highest I've given so far is 005 out of 007 on this scale, <laughs> which is like Diamonds Are Forever. Um, although you'd be surprised, some of the kind of more masculine, more kind of straight acting films like License to Kill and Casino Royale are actually quite high on the scale as well. And then you've got things on the other end of the scale as well. But I'm not going to spoil anything. You can you can see the ratings there. But I've done 10 of those so far. But my next one 
He's my uh, one of my husband's favourite Bond films, so I'm keeping him happy. Uh, I finally got around to Tomorrow Never Dies, which is also, as I said earlier, one of my my go tos if I want kind of comfort food. Um, so yeah, I'm really looking forward to get stuck into that. I'm just warning people in advance; some of them are quite long because even though I know the Bond films really well and I've seen them how lots and lots of times. When I go in with like queer lenses on, I see so much that I've never seen before. And I always get that feedback from people, um, whether they're queer themselves or not. It's like, I would never have thought of it in this way. And honestly, about half of the stuff I've never even noticed myself. So it's, it's a fascinating uh, project for me anyway. Awesome. We'll have to check that out. So yeah, licensedtoqueer.com. Make sure to check it out. And for anyone who wants to keep track of the knocklist at home, you can head over to letterbox.com slash knocklist. We'll have the lists up of what made the list, what didn't make the list, and everything we've covered across the board. And don't forget to follow us discreetly, of course, at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, good luck among the shadows.